The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. My name is April Martin, and I'm the new president of American Association of Blind Teachers. And this panel discussion is going to be about what it takes to be successful in college. And we have three panelists. Um, the first is Dr. Tabitha Brecky, and she is a former disabled student services office worker. Um, she now works for the VA in St. Louis as a VIS coordinator. Our second speaker is Dr. Suzanne Amet. And our third speaker is Brandon Reed, who is our student representative of, on the AABT board. So each of our three panelists are going to take about 15 minutes. And Travis is going to help us keep track of time as our host. And then we'll leave 15 minutes at the end for questions. So if you have a question, just ask that you let the three speakers speak first, and then we'll take the questions at the end. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Tabitha and thank all of you for coming out to support us. Well, good evening, and I'm delighted to be part of the panel. Um, I just want to say if you're considering college and you're planning to go, congratulations. It can be one of the most wonderful times of your life. I know for me, um, I, I think back now and I think, gosh, I wish it could be 30 years ago and I could be an undergrad again. Um, but I want to give you a few tips of things that I, I think both before you get to the Office of Accessibility or the Program for Students with Disabilities or whatever your university calls that, um, there are some skills that I found both having worked as an accommodation specialist and then also as adjunct faculty at Auburn University that students really need. And the first of those is computer skills. So being able to do research on the internet, do searches, utilize online learning platforms, things like Canvas and Blackboard, um, using libraries, all of those kind of things, having good solid um, skills using things like Word or Pages, you know, for editing, all of that stuff. Another thing I would say, um, no matter where you go to college, is having good orientation and mobility skills. You want to learn your campus, know how to get from place to place, be able to participate in activities, not just going to classes, but all those fun sports events and concerts and, you know, just hanging out with people at different campus venues and what have you. So getting those travel skills, whether you're going to be a cane user or, a, you know, eventually you want to get a guide dog, whatever that is, but being able to be independent as you can. and. I would also kind of include on in with being independent, those other skills like doing your own laundry, you know, cooking, even if it's doing some light stuff while you're in the dorm, but being sure you have those skills before you leave home so that when you get to college, you're able to, you know, tend to the things you need to so that you can not only study, but also, you know, live day-to-day -day life. Um, as you're looking at colleges, Every college 
well, I shouldn't say every, but but I, I can't imagine a college anymore without some kind of office of accessibility or program for students with disabilities, some kind of ADA office. Each of them is going to be different. So when you are at that point, probably your junior or senior year when you're looking at colleges and touring, you want to think of a list of questions and have those ready so that you can get the answers you need. So, you know, you want to find out um, what, um, how does their accommodation process work? You know, you're going to want to know, um, because at some schools, the, the college will email your professor the accommodations for which you're approved. At other schools, you will need to submit those accommodations to your instructors. In the old days, um, they would hand you a letter and you would take it to the faculty and they'd sign it and you'd take it back to the Office of Accessibility um, at different schools that I've known. That's usually not the case anymore. It's usually online, but you might have a faculty member ask you, where's your accommodations letter if they're an older faculty member? Um, so, you, you know, you want to know kind of what is that process? Um, what, you know, how do they go about providing um, books? You know, what is that process like? What, you know, what kinds of technology do they have available? Now, most people anymore have their own technology when they go to college, but it still might be useful to know, you know, are there accessible computer labs? Where, you know, what, what does that school have to offer? And just kind of finding out what some of those services are. Um, one of the things that um, you, you want to remember is that the Office of Accessibility is there to give you support, but they're not there to talk, to, to do the advocating for you. They can help you advocate. And, and definitely, I often, you know, would meet with faculty and students if, if the student had tried to resolve problems with faculty and then or they needed, you know, some a different perspective, what have you. So uh, the office is definitely there to support you. But you have to remember, you're driving the bus as the student. Um, one other thing that's very important to know is that legally, when you're an adult, unless you have signed an agreement, the Office of Accessibility can't, like, talk with your parents about your progress because of FERPA, the law. And so... Unless you give them permission, uh, your parents might call up and say, hey, I want to know how, you know, uh, Johnny's doing or, you know, Ashley's doing at school. And the Office of Accessibility has to say, well, I can't talk to you about that because you're not on, you haven't, you know, your, your student hasn't released us to be able to talk with you. And so sometimes I would get parents saying, well, I'm paying the bills. And I'd have to have that conversation where, well, you'll need to talk with your son or daughter about that because I can't legally tell you these things. So um, if there are people that you, you know, want involved, that's fine, but you'll, you'll need to let that be known. The other thing I want to um, encourage you to do is, and Suzanne will talk about this more as faculty as, as well, but I think the best thing you can do is to be proactive and to be positive. So instead of going up to a faculty member saying, hey, I need you to do this, it, it's better to say, hey, can, can we meet to discuss my accommodations and, and, and how we can you know, work together on that? Or um, if you're having a problem 
it, it's always better to, you know, have the have a list of things that you need to talk about if you're going to meet with somebody to talk about something difficult, and and go into it as professionally and as calmly as you can, and um, try to think of it as an opportunity to collaborate um, as you're working through things. You know, when you get when you're meeting with faculty, um, and and also your office of accessibility. You know, as, as you have problems, but it's always good to be organized and have the list of things that you want to get accomplished in that meeting, because the last thing you want to do is feel flustered and forget what you want to say. Um, I, I'll entertain more specific questions about the Office of Accessibility when we have Q&A at the end. I would, I want to encourage you to develop um, skills. I, I'm coming back to that, but one of the big ones is note-taking. Um, Unless you're in classes that have a lot of graphics or math or things that are hard to capture verbally, um, there really isn't, I, I mean, I, I would think that there, there really, for most people, isn't a reason why a student with a visual impairment should have people taking notes for them in classes. You control that information then, and you know what you've captured. If somebody else is doing it, you don't know what you're going to get. And so unless it's something where um, you're in a class where there's a lot of things that are verbally hard to get from the either the professor's lecturing style or the subject matter, then you want to have a conversation to see if you can get um, copies. Of, like when I took a stats class, for example, doing my doctorate, I, I got copies of my instructor's notes um, so that I would understand what the processes were you know, the things that she was putting on the, the overhead at that point. Um, so, so definitely have a good way of taking notes, you know, be prepared in that way. Um, you know, no, I can't stress strongly enough having good solid computer skills. And um, the other thing I would encourage you to do is get involved when you get to campus. Um, if, if you're an undergrad, especially whether you're transferring in or just starting out, it might be a good idea to live in the dorms because it's easier to develop community and get to know people. Um, and nobody develops a social group uh, by just staying in your room and reading Bard books. There's nothing wrong with reading Bard books. I love Bard, but, but try to find, there's usually loads of student organizations and on all different, you know, hobbies or, political issues or religious organizations, whatever it might be, but but there are a lot of ways to find people and connect. And so college is a lot more fun if you if you take that time and take those risks. And um, I think and, and I think Suzanne and Brandon might back me up in saying this when they when they talk that you know it's a lot easier than in high school where people were much more into conforming and um to, to find a niche and, and people, you know, with whom you're comfortable in, in college. It was, I just found it to be a great, a great experience. And I encourage you to just take some of those, um, get to know, you know, what's available to you and, and try things out. Um, another thing I would encourage though, is always be aware of your environment and be safe. Um, just use good common sense. You know, if you're, 
doing things at night, travel with a group, um, you know, try not to be intoxicated wandering around by yourself or, you know, just, just be safe, be, be cognizant of where you are and what's happening around you. That's another thing. Um, but I, I, I would just say, yeah, um, it's very hard to cover such a broad topic because everybody has so many different needs. But um, anyway, I will pass it back to April. I don't know if I used all my time, but I'll answer any more questions that people have. Okay. Um, thank you, Tabitha. Um, we will take questions after all three have spoken. So if you have any, just Hold on to them. And Suzanne, would you like to go ahead? And it's just cool. since we're in between people, I'll just let you know it's about 12 minutes into the call right now. Okay. Thank you, Travis. Hi, everybody. This is Suzanne Ament. Um, I am a history professor at Radford University, which is a state school in Virginia. And we have about 8,000 undergraduates at this campus. And I've taught there for about 20 years. Uh, I was an undergraduate at Santa Cruz, UC Santa Cruz, which is a very different school quite a while ago. I'm really old, guys, okay? So just remember that, and I can show you how old I am by telling you that the first time I ever used a computer to work on anything was on my doctoral dissertation. So um, I did not use computers. I did not have some of the things that you all have in terms of technology now, and I'm, I'm therefore not a particularly good tech person. But nevertheless, what I am is a faculty member and I teach four different classes every semester and I have about 100 students minimum that I work with in, in those classes. So I really appreciated everything Tabitha said and I agree wholeheartedly with absolutely every point. Um, and and let, me, let, let me tell you what it looks like to me at my campus uh, well, first, let me tell you one thing about colleges in general. There are different levels of schools. There are R1, Research 1 schools that are very large, things like Indiana University or um, some of the Ohio State or uh, Illinois, some of those really big schools that, that pride themselves on major research. And what happens then is you often aren't even working with a professor. You're working with a graduate student in the intro classes in particular. So that makes things a little bit different. Where I teach, that's not the case. Radford prides itself on being a school that really has faculty that works well with the students and, and is willing to work with the students. So if you're a little nervous about going to college and worrying about sort of how you're going to do things, you might think about going as an undergrad to one of those schools. Some of them are private. Some of them are state. Some of them are smaller and larger. Um, so it might take you deciding what your personality wants as well. Um, if you do want an R1 school, I would suggest that you have a pretty good idea of what kind of major you want to get into, because that's where you'll find your community there. Otherwise, it's very tough at those large schools to find community. They're huge and they're hard to learn and they're hard to, to find people. Um, they're just really big. 
So you want to be really focused if you want to go to an R1 school as an undergrad, as a freshman. Okay. That's my advice to that. Um, and know very much what you want to do there because there might be specialty programs at R1s that nothing else has. So like if you wanted to take Uzbek language and become the first translator in, in Tashkent, let's say, um, you might want to go to IU where I went as a, as a PhD student. But um, and that that's a good reason to go there if that's what you want to do. And, and it'll work out for you because you'll you'll be focused and you'll want to do it. Okay, so let me switch a little bit now to process of what happens at my school. And as Tabitha said, it may be different. Uh, at my school, what happens is the faculty member gets a notice that says our CAS or our Centers for Accessible Service um, is sending um, a referral that this student is seeking accommodations and, and has been approved for accommodations. So we'll get that email, but very, very, very clearly is stated in that email is that the student must come to you and discuss those accommodations with you before you implement those accommodations. Okay, I don't know why it's this way, but I think it's a good idea because what that does is it, it, it makes the student and the faculty member actually interact, whether that's by in-person meeting in office hours or a phone call or a Zoom or whatever happens, that has to happen. That interaction has to happen between the faculty member and the, and the student before the faculty member is basically permitted to allow those accommodations to happen. Now, this puts me in a bit of a bind when students don't come to me because students have accommodations, but they don't have to use them. That's another point to make. So I suggest that if you want accommodations at all, you get all your accommodations set up and then you decide whether you need to use them or not for each class. So if you're, if you're say low vision and you might need one of those accommodations in one class because it's a really big class and you need to sit up front and you have to have some sort of equipment to see the board with or whatever, um, you might use it for that class, but in a smaller class, you might be fine, right? So you wouldn't use your accommodation if that was your accommodation. So you have the right to not use your accommodation as much as you have the right to have your accommodation. So when I get these notices and then people don't come to me, then I don't know whether I should push them and say, do you need your accommodations or not? Because I figure they know what they're doing and I don't want to be, um, disrespectful and breaking privacy by pushing on them to say, come see me about your accommodations. What do you need? What do you want to do? Even though my personality is one that says, I want to help you. I want to make sure you succeed. So it puts me in a bit of a bind. So first things first, communicate, right? Whatever you need, communicate with your faculty member, with your student services offices, with your the, the uh, student Student life people are the ones who usually do the clubs and the organizations that Tabitha was talking about. Go to them and say, hey, I'm a, I'm a blind student. I'm not sure how to get in touch with all these things. A lot of them are online now, so you might be better than, than the average person if you're a good tech user. Um, but use your resources. Go find out who's in charge of those clubs. Ask for help because people really generally do want to help on campus. They really... Uh, especially if you've shown that you are seeking help, they were they will try hard to to help you out.
So if a student comes to my office, then we sit down. I have my computer with the list and we, I say to them, what is it you need from my class? Because a lot of times they'll have things that are not even relevant to what I'm doing in class. And so they'll tell me I need um, sometimes extra time or a quiet space, um, extra time on tests or uh, extensions for turning in work. If it's a timed situation, um, there might be just all kinds of different accommodations. So it would depend on you. Um, one thing that can come up, and it does come up often in humanities classes, there are people that believe that note-taking should be done by hand and they don't want computers in the classroom. So you might want to make sure that you have an accommodation that you can use a note-taker or a computer in any class that you go into. Um, that is something that should be allowed no matter what, but sometimes there have been issues. I know on my campus with certain faculty members, there have been issues with that. So why they, they want that is because they don't want the distraction in the class. And they also think that taking notes by hand, and that would be for sighted people, that that makes them learn the material better. And there is scientific evidence about that. We blind folks have to do it on note takers or braille notes or computers, whichever one we have. Um, you can get note taking services. Lately, that's been done not in the way it used to be done, which was to find a sighted student to take notes and then turn them into you or to um, somehow uh, send them electronically or whatever. Um, they now have a pen that actually has a, a system that actually well, you can designate what notes you want. It's kind of, a, it's something I don't understand totally, but a blind person, I don't think it would be accessible for. At any rate, you can have note takers and I've had um, students that needed that and we made that happen. If you need to sit in a certain place in class so you can hear better, see better, um, whichever, whatever the case, maybe you wanna be on an aisle so that you can find the door more easily. Some of those might not be official accommodations, but if you, if your faculty member, if you talk to them and say, I would, that would really help me out. Most people will try to make that happen for you. Okay. So um, communication is the best method of operating. So advocacy for yourself. Um, a little bit of a story. I do have a sighted assistant that works with me about 20 hours a week that does a lot with um, grading and, um, sort of technical stuff, some of the tech that I'm not very good with. Um, while I'm worrying about getting lecture notes put together in Braille and such, he's doing some of the, the grade books and things like that. But he told me, he'd worked in high schools before, and he said that all the IEP meetings never included the students. And I said, that is the worst thing that could have ever happened to anyone, is that they were excluded from their own meeting to determine what, they, what was necessary for them in school. And so Hopefully, you guys out there that are going to college have been involved already in advocating for yourself and what you need in your school systems, but it sounds like maybe you are not used to it. So this is going to be a new thing for you to advocate for yourself. And that, as Tabitha said, be professional, come in and say, I'd like to meet with you. Let's sit down and talk about this. And then if there are disagreements about things, then bring the, the disability service office in. They have um, a lots of, uh, I don't want to say proof, but I want to say um, methods to explain 
and help faculty understand if you have not been able to explain it to them well enough. So use that source if you're going to have if you have any problems with a faculty member. Um, honestly, I have never had a totally blind student in my class. The one student that was coming into my freshman world history class had a guide dog and he was new with his guide dog and we were going to meet. So our two guide dogs could just sort of recognize each other and then they'd be professional as most guide dogs are. But unfortunately, as they saw each other across this great echoey lobby right near the dean's office, um, the two dogs decided to bark. <laughs> and it echoed like crazy. And the dean comes racing out of her office and says, Dr. Roman, get to your office. Go to your office right now. Go to your office. And I'm like, uh, we're trying to work this out. Go to your office. Go. So I go upstairs and she comes. That's that's not going to happen. That can't happen. That's too frightening. That's terrible. That's awful. And I was like, yes, but this student is in my class and we're working this out. No, she, he's going out of your class. So I called the student and I said, do you want to be in my class? And he said, no, the dean actually got me into a class I need more that I couldn't get in before. And I said, well, as long as you're happy, I won't make a fuss. But otherwise, I would fight tooth and nail to get you in my class because that would be wrong to keep you out because we both have guide dogs. So. It worked out that I didn't have him as a student, unfortunately, because it would have been fun to work with him and find out how my style of teaching and his um, learning styles met or didn't meet. It would have, been, would have been a good learning experience for me to know how a blind student would have reacted to my class, but it didn't happen, unfortunately. So um, you might be few and far between on campus if you're a blind student depending on how big the school is and what program you're in. So you might be a, a pioneer in some ways in, in those things. If you're studying to be a teacher of the visually impaired, that might not be so true. But if you're studying Russian history, pretty true. Okay. So um, trying to think what, what else you might, might be helpful to you. Um, the FERPA is a real thing and faculty are also bound by it. So your parents cannot call me. Well, they can, but I can't talk to them. And unless that FERPA is signed, unless I know that. So faculty don't usually generally operate dealing with, with uh, parents. That's different than high school. Um, and we would much prefer to deal with the student than the faculty member in any case, no matter what the situation was, because you're the person we're working with. You're the person that that is coming to our class and that we're dealing with, not your parents. So um, we would rather deal with you as a, as a vast majority of the situations. Okay. So I think um, freshmen often are afraid of their faculty. I've heard people say that. And yes, I get that. We're older. We're, you know, those quote unquote adults and, you know, we're in these offices and we're kind of in our ivory towers and we're doing research on things that you might not even think was important. But we do care about the students because we wouldn't be teaching at universities where we have to teach for for teaching load if we didn't care something about what our students learn and that they do OK, that they they find a, a path to succeed. But you also have to do your part. And. Let me go to um, my world history class and Confucius. Confucius said he would teach anyone from the poor to the rich. It didn't matter. Um, of course, it was men back then, but nevertheless, he said he would teach anyone as long as they weren't lazy. 
So you need to do your part as a student and keep up and do do your best work to show that you are participatory, that you're engaged in the class and in learning. And that brings a faculty member right to your side immediately because there are a number of students that don't do that. They come to college and we don't know quite why because they're not coming to class. They don't do their work. They don't they don't um, participate in class, right? If, if they come even, they don't take notes. They don't do other things. So if you act like a good student, whether you are getting good grades or not, doesn't matter that you're trying goes a long way to convince faculty that you are somebody that's serious, that we will bend over even more backwards for to try and figure out how to, to succeed if, if you're having problems. So, so do your part as a student. That's, that's part of the, um, the equation. Uh, so, so do your work. And if you do have problems and you don't understand something, ask. And I like to say, you came to college not because you know everything, you came to college to learn things. And so if you're not asking questions, how are you learning? So I try to promote people to ask questions in my classes. And it doesn't always work, but I work on it. There's, a, there's also the other kind of common phrase that there really isn't such a thing as a dumb question. There might be a dumb question here and there, but most of the time that's not what you're asking. You're asking something quite reasonable and or you might need a repetition of something that you weren't familiar with. And faculty members are generally ready to do that. They're ready to help you with that. So um, I think I will stop there and hope you have some time for questions because that's always the best way to learn is to answer the questions you have. And um, I really appreciated the chance to be here and hope I can help out if there's other questions that come up later. Thanks much. And it is nearly top, the top of the hour, so that's really good timing. Excellent. Yeah. Um, thank you, Suzanne. And Brandon, would you like to go ahead and speak for about 15 minutes? And then sure. we'll have our question and answer okay. period. Um, all right. Hi, everyone. So um, I'm going to tell you my story first, and then we I will get into like sort of um, what makes a college student a college student. So um, I'm currently um, a junior at California State University Fullerton. I'm studying child and adolescent studies. Um, my primary concentration is, um, as of right now, adolescence and youth, but I'm switching back to elementary, so yay. Um, but before I became a child and adolescent studies major, I was a music major for two and a half years. So I do have knowledge about that if um, any of you guys are interested in becoming music majors. Um, I'd be happy to help out you guys, uh, help you guys out. Um, but first, um, before I went to uh, California State University Fullerton, I went to a community college, um, which is generally speaking a two-year school, um, and there you'll do like a lot of lower division level courses, um, as well as general education courses. So, what general education courses are, um, it's Basically, you'll do a lot of stuff that you did in um, high school that's just building upon more of that material. So, for example, I had to take an English course and, um, you know, some science courses and all and um, a math course. I took statistics um, as well as you're also juggling um, major coursework. So you're doing little like 
back when I was a music major, you do, you do like a music theory on top of musicianship, on top of a choir class, and you do, you know, a voice class as well as a GE. So you'll have a bunch of different courses you take all in one semester. Um, also, generally speaking, um, community college are community colleges are um, cheaper than uh, going straight to university first. So it's um, it's best probably just get your GEs out of the way and then transfer over to for your college. Um, yeah. Um, so I'd like to piggyback on what uh, my other colleagues said about approaching your professor. Um, I often do those at the literally the end of the first day. I will go up to the professor um, at their desk or when I was a music major at the piano, stereotypical piano. Um, and I would actually, you know, introduce myself. I call it the high end blind speech. Um, and I explain to them if they have any sort of questions about me in the coursework or if I have any questions um, throughout the syllabus, um, because usually they would have gotten a, an accessibility letter before class. Um, so we do, we usually don't have any sort of qualms, but, uh, most of the time it'll be like, you know, if they have any sort of questions, because most of the time I'm usually the first ever blind person they've ever met. So, um, yeah, so be prepared for that. Um, don't be afraid they're nice generally speaking um and if you cannot get them on the first day uh, try to meet them at their office hours um that's also another good tip um so yeah um also learn to navigate your um your student portal so a lot of universities will have a student portal and this is where you you register for courses, you'll uh, make your payments, you'll see events, other fun, lovely things. But not all college portals um, are built the like. I've gone to three different colleges and every single college had a different portal. And they were all had either little quirks, accessibility quirks, or were kind of a pain to navigate at times. So have good technology skills to, to um, navigate those panels or those portals um yeah also um try to learn your campus as much as humanly possible before your classes start um because when you're there on the first day you don't want to be struggling because there's going to be a lot of people and they're all going to be lost and it'd be a cool flex on you to say hey i know where the 1300 building is before all these other people did. So it's a nice little brag. Um, but it's also a good idea. So you can learn where, you know, room 14B is on the second floor across the hallway down here. Um, also, if you can try to get the layout of the room, because some college rooms will be like cavernous and some rooms will be tiny. So it's good um, to understand where you can sit and where to go. Um, also, different food establishments on campus. I'm um, a frequent flyer at uh, a Starbucks on campus. And I do that, and I go there pretty much every day. Um, as, you know, it's just a little treat that I like to do, but it's also good to understand where all those are. So you can maybe meet some friends and, you know, say, hey, you want to go some coffee or whatever? So it's just good to understand where those places are um, as well. Um, 
Um, I don't know. Oh, also. Um, depending on your DSS or your accessible um, disabled student services, um, if you need Braille and you utilize Braille a lot, um, just understand that that kind of will take a lot of time to get to you, depending on if they do it in-house or if they do it out of house. So for example, at my university, they, my university, they do all the Braille out of house. Um, so it usually takes up, a, up to a couple of weeks to get um, any sort of PowerPoints that I need. Um, so just be aware that if you rely on Braille materials, those could take a, a while to get to you. Um, yeah. Oh, I also don't live on the campus. I um, commute back and forth. So that's also one thing to keep in mind is if you have to rely on public transportation, understand where uh, your bus stops are, where um, your paratransit will get you if there's any stops on your college campus. Um, yeah, understand where those are. And... Just try to be as sociable as you can. You might be the only blind person in your major, which is kind of terrifying, but also rewarding because you can say, hey, this is kind of what works for me. Um, and, you know, doesn't work for me. And you, you know, you might be the one that changes things. So, for example, I um, have a project right now, one of my courses, where I have to evaluate a... Um, toy based upon um, child development theories and the process of choosing that toy in the um, assignment wasn't necessarily accessible for me because I didn't understand a, what these toys looked like and so I approached the professor and I said you know can I try to find something that's more accessible to me and she loved it and she was like oh my gosh that, I never would have thought about that so you know being being the first of anything can be amazing because you can come in there and say, you know, what if we tried this? What if this, what if you tried this as an assignment? And so it's just amazing to have those experiences um, because you can educate not only yourself, but educate other professors and other colleagues and other students um, on navigating college with a disability and learning your particular major as someone with a disability. So, yeah. That's all I have. I'm I'm open for any questions. And I know I'm a little under time. Thank you, Brandon. Um, Travis, if you don't mind, I'm just going to let you recognize raised hands. And um, I really appreciate you hosting right. for us. No problem. Uh, we do not have any hands right now. Okay. We do now. Oh. Connie. Hey, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Connie, may unmute? Oh, okay, sorry. The, this Zoom setup was a little different than what I'm used to on the phone. Um, so I got my undergraduate degree in music therapy. And then um, I went to graduate school and got a degree in special ed and a teaching credential to teach visually impaired students. Then I did the itinerant thing for a while, but that got old after a while. So I went back to school, changed my career, went to UC Davis, 
got a master's degree in applied linguistics with an emphasis on teaching English to speakers of other languages. And it was, okay, so it was really interesting going back to school as an older student. Um, I actually, okay, let me try to get to the point. Self-advocacy has been emphasized a lot on this call, and I can't emphasize how important that is. And a part of that is preparing in advance, okay? I made appointments with my professors and saw them before school started and met with each and every single one of them and talked about accommodations, also, you know, set up services with disabled student services. Um, also, I met with an orientation and mobility and went to the campus a few times before school started, before it got crowded, mm -hmm. to learn my way around the campus, learn where my classrooms were, learn where the student union was where and where the eating places were before the campus got crowded because there were a lot of bicycles and, mm -hmm. you know, lots of people. So that's, that's what I'm trying to say. You know, the more you can plan in advance, the better. And you guys use more computers now. Uh, we weren't using them that much back then, but now, now you're, you know, technology skills and self-advocacy. That's extremely important. So thank you so much for this call, you guys. April, this is Tabitha. Can I come back to kind of a point that we were talking about that Suzanne mentioned about not having to use your accommodations, and that's a choice. Um, one of the things I, I want to encourage is even if you've had a faculty member in previous semesters and you want to use your accommodations, always go through whatever that process is to submit them and activate them because the faculty member might remember that you have accommodations and what those are, but they might not, depending on you know their teaching load and, and whatnot. So I always encourage students, even if you know a faculty member, make sure you still put those things formally in place so that you're covered and the faculty member is covered. Um, and, and, and that can make life easier as, as things go along. I will second that because um, actually we have to go with the accommodation letters that we're not allowed to do accommodations without them. So, and mm -hmm. I think there's legal reasons for that. I don't understand it particularly, but I know what we're, we're, you know, meant to follow them. So yeah, thank you Tabitha for that. We do not have any hands right now. Okay. Give it a couple of more minutes and wrap it up if we don't have any other hands raised. So I want to thank gonna, all of you. I was going to react to something that um, Brandon said, that he had gone to different schools. And that although that's um, something that happens a lot these days, people go to the community college for, for two years and they go on to the four years and finish in two or three years, depending on what they're doing. Um, I'm... I would think that a, that somebody who is blind that needs to do a lot of learning and a con sort of figuring that out might want to go with the four-year school first, even if it is a little more expensive, because you do get to know things better and faculty better, and it's a little bit easier to integrate. When you come in as, as a transfer, there's, there's sort of a lot you have to jump in two feet first, and that's for any student. That's not just because you're disabled. Um, that transfers have a little bit of a harder time adjusting to things, I think, uh, when they jump in as juniors at, at a four-year school. 
So mm-hmm. I might encourage you to think about doing the university your, your, or college first and not necessarily going to the community college. But if, if you have to, you have to. You do what you do, you know. Here in the state of Alabama, I think voc rehab, and I could be wrong about this, but I don't think I am. They actually require kids to do community college and then to a four-year program if they're paying for tuition. Um, I'm not positive about that. Though, I, I'm i not sure about that because we had Sounds a lot of freshmen that voc rehab. Yeah, I was going to say voc rehab. We had a lot of students that had voc rehab when I was working at Auburn. Um, okay, but I don't know, you know, there, there, there may be, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Um, that sounds really strange to me, <laughs> but then lots of things do. Well, I know, I know that a lot of state VR agencies, like they won't pay for out of state tuition costs. Right. Yeah. If there's, a, you know, they won't pay more than they would pay for an in-state kind of program. Um, and then they, there, there might be stipulations on like, if you're going to get a higher ed, you know, degree, like if you're going for master's or doctorate, it has to be kind of a reason for that, that you need it for a job. If they're going to pay, they won't necessarily just fund that. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I've heard both of those before, but not the other one. Mm-hmm. And you have about 15 minutes left. Okay. Do we have any hands raised? No. Okay. Um, do the three of you have any other comments you'd like to make, or should we just wrap up a few minutes early? Okay. Well, thank you all for being here and for hosting and streaming for us and um i will talk with you again soon